0: Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. Humans of Magic is sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live revolutionizes card and board game streaming by providing you with dynamic, real-time information for games like Magic the Gathering. Check us out during the Twitch live broadcasts of the Star City Games Open Series and visit our website at cardboard.live. To support Humans of Magic and the upcoming Humans of Magic book, please visit patreon.com slash jamessu. That's patreon.com slash j-a-m-e-s-h-s-u. My guest today is the Slovak sensation, Mate Zatokai, or as some call him, the Big Z. Mate is a commentator for Wizards of the Coast and team manager for Harabia Pros. He is also a retired Magic professional player with two Pro Tour top 8s to his name. He wears many hats, and is one of the most well-connected people in Magic the Gathering. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. There's a lot of valuable insight in here, including Mate's views on the future of Magic coverage, and how to maximize the output of a team. He's definitely no stranger to the latter, as he was an early member of the legendary Team Eureka, and currently manages over 20 professional Magic players. This interview is divided into two parts. Part 1, which you're listening to right now, is focus on Mate's playing career. In part 2, you'll hear about his foray into commentary and the lessons he's learned from managing some of the most talented Magic players in the world. So let's get it started. Here's my conversation with Mate Zatokai. Welcome to the first episode of Humans of Magic of 2019. I'm here with Matej Zatokai. Matej, how are you? I'm great, James. How are you? I'm doing really good. Whereabouts in the world are you located right now?
1: So I'm uh, in Bratislava, Slovakia. It's my hometown. I was born here some 34 years ago. I've lived uh, abroad for a few short stints, but mostly I'm based in Slovakia, so Eastern
0: Europe. How is the environment there? I've never had a chance to to visit yet. Maybe I will in the future, now that I know someone from there. But uh, how how would you generally describe it to people that may not have had the pleasure of visiting?
1: Uh, I mean, Bratislava is relatively developed, probably more so than, than other people would generally think when they think of Eastern Europe. But uh, our town is quite cosmopolitan, international, still fairly small, only around 600,000 people uh, in the capital, and around 6 million in, in the whole country. It's still fairly rural, uh, so to speak. But uh, otherwise, I, I, I like it here. It's uh, I, know, I know it well. We have our own language. We use the Euro. And uh, we, we're a decent tourist
0: location for a day or two. But because we're so small, there's not that much to see here. So what's the number one site that someone should see when he or she visits the the city uh we have like a very nice big castle and we
1: have uh, probably number one would be uh we call the ufo and it's a it's a restaurant above a bridge that kind of is shaped like a flying saucer so it's pretty cool and you get
0: some amazing views of the city there that's awesome i'm getting the castle and the ufo so right away we have the science fiction as well as the fantasy theme (laughs) yeah pretty much I know that you wear many hats. From studying your past accomplishments, I know that you are, first of all, a retired magic professional with two Pro Tour Top 8s. You are also currently a caster or commentator on the European circuit for Wizards and uh, other events. And you also wear the hat of being the manager of the Harariya Pro's team that's the team in in europe correct
1: it was last year but now it's uh, it's spanning the whole globe so i have more than 20 more than 20 players under my under my wing, so to speak
0: that is incredible so you are a magic professional who knows the game very well even though you are retired you commentate on the highest levels of the game and you help manage some of the the best players in the game that is really uh, amazing. And you wear so many different hats. Was there some kind of linear progression or connection between each of these three roles that you had? Uh, how did one lead to the other?
1: It's a very good question. And something that I, I uh, when I reminisce about my past days, I kind of see, um, one leading to the other because ultimately I always wanted to play on the pro tour when I was starting to play magic in the first few years even and uh then slowly as with some success on the pro tour that that led me to knowing people who do the coverage and getting to know other players and and I think just my my wanting of wanting to do something more than just play on the pro tour has probably led me to be Uh, a coverage caster and uh, someone who's now uh, being active in other parts of the game uh, even though I'm not playing competitively anymore.
0: A lot of players tend to stick to one role. So for example they may want to be a professional player and they just end up doing it. So for example John Finkel may have done that 20 years ago and he's still to a large extent doing that. Going from a player into something outside of the game was there a particular moment or being aware of something that led to that uh mainly i think
1: it was uh starting to be a realization after i was uh still playing on the pro tour but then maybe figure out that that maybe i'm not as good as the best guys and the the standard just keeps improving and um while i knew i could be relevant i also recognized that the time investment necessary to do that was not something i could do long term because of my day job and my family and things like that so i was probably for maybe a longer than i than i thought was on the lookout of how to stay in the community without resorting to being the person that has to go to every gp has to grind the ptq circuit and so on so yeah i i, uh, I guess yeah i guess it was something
0: like this makes sense Let's start from the beginning, because I realize that I'm jumping all over the place in my excitement to learn more about you. Maybe we can just start from the very beginning, even before magic. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood, just anything at all, maybe your background, your family, anything that you feel like sharing? Yeah, sure. Uh,
1: I think one thing that's quite relevant, and not many actually people know know about this uh, or what kind of kid I was, but uh, even before I got to know Magic, I, uh, of course, as, as kids are, I was a gamer, right? I, I really liked games of all kinds. And uh, one thing that I, I really enjoyed and I uh, that comes up regularly is people kind of uh, ask me, like, Oh, how, Matej, how is it that you speak so many languages? Because uh, that's one of the things that a lot of people around me know by now, but I do speak English, pretty good German, and I used to be very fluent in French as well as, uh, uh, you know, my my native tongue, Slovak language. So, uh, and one of the things, one of the answers was that I watched a lot of TV. And by by a lot, I do mean a lot. I used to wake up at 5 a.m. and turn on the uh, TV and just watch that a lot. So, Of course, it was mostly cartoons as a kid, but then uh, slowly but surely, I I started really following... Like any sort of sports that were on, so like as a even before a teenager, I used to of course as it's probably a phase. I used to watch wrest uh, American wrestling, right? Uh, I used to watch uh, winter sports in the winter, so something like ski jumping, slalom, and uh, all these kind of like uh, traditional ski disciplines. And in uh, and more in the in the summertime, watching football, um, or soccer as you guys call it. So a lot of these things, and it actually got so serious that uh, I, at around. Age 13, 14, every morning I used to buy the daily sports newspaper and read it on the way to school and then read the rest on the way from school. And when I came back from school, I immediately turned the TV on to watch. Again, more, more stuff or play on my computer. Usually, uh, usually uh, I really like the sports games. So, for example, one of my favorite game of all time is Football Manager, which is basically uh, a football manager simulation. So, you impersonate a, a manager and you try to build your team. And it's it's quite technical and, and complicated, but I just really enjoy that aspect. Because while I do like sports as a spectator, and I, I did like playing sports as a kid, I had a bunch of like health issues when I was growing up. So, um, I think uh, I broke my I broke some bones several times and uh, as a teenager I started growing way too quickly uh, for my bones to keep up so I couldn't play sports for a year and even I even afterwards like I felt like some of the some of the particular cartilages that were that were uh, that were at the, at the core of this were just not working as, as I wanted them to so qu- even though I was playing uh, football flash soccer as a kid I had to stop after a few years and just never could come back to sports even though I do like playing with my friends after school at least for a while so I think magic came at a really good time into my life when I was around 14-15 and uh, it was basically a competitive outlet for me because it was something uh, uh, it, it had a whole world of competitiveness already built around it with the with the pro tour and the GPs at the time of course I didn't know right at the start but it it felt like a sport even though of course it's a game and now, now in these days we would call it an esport
0: yeah absolutely so you definitely saw a relationship or a connection between magic and the sports that you had watched when you were younger, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was like I felt like yeah, this is something for me, and it hit on the fantasy themes that from video games and from TV shows and whatnot. But I still had that, you know, mathematical kind of uh, strategical uh, point that I that I
0: really enjoyed, and I was actually quite fun that I, I started with the game. And what was it that attracted you to sports in the first place? Was it the foreignness of it? Was it the culture, the language or the competition? Like I'm trying to understand that initially how what kept you glued to the TV when you were younger?
1: It was just it was just fun find, finding someone to root for, hoping they do well. It's it's kind of a weird thing where I had even when I was listening to like music charts, like I identified like a favorite song, and every week I used to tune into to the local chart show and to see if the songs that I liked were like going up the charts, you know, and like hoping that the that the songs I didn't like were going down. So and similarly in in sports of all kinds, like I loved having favorites, being a fan, I, the fan experience, so. To to speak and going through the ups and downs of uh of sports for the teams or or individuals that I was rooting for
0: yeah absolutely that's uh it, it sounds like it's such a natural fit for what you end up doing later but yeah that makes sense <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's it's when I look back at how, what I've achieved
1: so far in my magic career, it's quite fun to see uh, how it kind of relates to what I was doing as a kid. You know, subconsciously, just trying to pass pass the time, right? And uh, so, yeah, it's uh, it's definitely definitely um,
0: definitely interesting how how things line up in the end. And when you first started playing magic, how did you get into it? And do you remember some of the earliest cards or decks that you were playing? Oh, yeah, I, I, I started playing, uh, so this was
1: around 98, 99, I don't exactly remember when, uh, but it was roughly around the uh, time in 6th edition, and then Earth's Destiny came out, Earth's Legacy, so that, that time frame, of course, I don't remember it that well, because the first time I saw it was uh, from my best friend from elementary school who brought it, his father also uh, saw the game from his colleagues at work, he brought it home, and of course, him being my best friend, me going there, all the time to play video games with him on, on their computer. Uh, we just started playing uh, casually here and there. And, uh, actually that was the last year of elementary school. And then I move into, well, elementary and middle school is kind of here combined. So, uh, at the end of eighth grade, I moved into a different school and I, but I still wanted to play. So I taught all my, uh, classmates that were interested to play. And we just kept playing in, uh, in, uh, in our school, in our high school. And then of course we discovered the first shops, uh, the, well, the only shop and uh, try to get some cards to improve our decks you know and metagaming between each other and uh, maybe I, I still remember trading most of my cards for a card I don't remember the exact what it does but I, I uh, remember reading an article in a local like magic magazine that the card Crusade was very good so 2 white mana plus 1 plus 1 to all your white creatures and I played white a lot so that, was, that felt like oh this card is amazing but it was too expensive for me to acquire at the time I was still a kid you know, playing very casually, so I would, then I, my friend f- found a card which was for I think for 3 mana or maybe for 2 I don't remember but it gave all your creatures plus 0 plus 1 so it only pumped the toughness not 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 the power and I thought like it's almost as good as Crusade I have to get well, do, do whatever it takes to acquire it and uh, yeah and my first big big investment though was then the first card I sank my money into at the time which was like maybe 2 bucks uh, and it was like Seraph which is 7 mana 4-4 four, four flyer if it kills something in combat I I can bring it back under my control and uh, like, everyone was like whoa you have a four four flyer wow that's so big you know and it just, even though like the other other kids you know had like big green monsters and whatnot it was still it was still good times and uh, yeah I remember my first like expensive card that I opened from booster pack was a foil academy rector that I promptly traded away for around forty commons so I'm sure the shop owner must have been very happy at the time
0: oh yeah. Was there something about the the color white that attracted you to playing it?
1: Mm, Probably on a subconscious level, but I I don't quite recall. I I just liked... You know, I, I like flyers. I like pumping my guys up, and uh, like it was also, uh, you know, at the time uh, when I was sh- seeing some decks, it was, you know, they were playing, I don't know, like white knights and, and uh, these small weenies, savannah, savannah lions. Yeah, maybe one of the one of the things that I, uh, why I did like why the start was, uh, you know, the old PC game Chandelar. Oh yeah,
0: the original Magic game.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, I used to play it a lot, and when I first started playing, it just seemed awesome that there were one mana two, uh, one mana two ones, and two mana two twos, and you could pump them up with like the crusade that I mentioned, and, and like you had all these like source of plowshares, powerful removal effects. So it felt like uh, like white seemed like a good color to be in. But of course, as a kid, I didn't want to be black because you know black's evil, and I was a good kid, you know, I was I had good grades in school and everything. So maybe it was like this kind of thing where I didn't want to be black, so I want to be the good guy so i'm gonna play white
0: yeah definitely and uh when you first made your way into the the card shops to try and buy more more cards to make your deck better was that a strange experience going into your first gaming store or was it pretty normal because you i'm trying to imagine as a kid going into the store how how did it feel like did it feel like a new world or something else i just it just felt like i i didn't
1: realize that the whole world behind it. It was, uh, it was actually only there was only one shop in the whole country and it was in my city and it was uh, not not far from my school so we used to go there regularly and it was just this whole microcosm uh, of like something that i i didn't really experience before uh, where like the of course the shop owner had big binders of cars that he would sell for peanuts but it was a way to attract the the kids to potentially buy some more expensive stuff later of course he was getting rid of some of the chaps as well and uh, outside the store, uh, there was, like, a small nook, which was, like, uh, like maybe a one and a half times one and a half meters, really small, and, like, sometimes there were, like, 20 people around it, you know, people trying to find way on the ground outside to try to play magic or trade cards or do everything, and I was just, like... There's a bunch of people playing this, especially uh, a bunch of kids my age, a few older kids, and so on. And the only time where I came anywhere even close to like such an experience was when I was younger. I used to uh, I used to trade ice hockey cards again, so like collectible collector cards. But you couldn't play with those. And suddenly it was like I can collect this and I can play with this, and I can like hang out with some of these kids, and it just felt like yeah, that's something I want to do, of course. So and uh, like it was a great
0: way to make more friends so I, I, uh, I really liked it I see so definitely the social aspect appealed to you for sure yeah so take me through how you went from you know playing the game casually to this might be fast forwarding a lot but how did how did you actually start playing your first competitive tournament in magic walk me through how how that story happened yeah, so it was, I mean, we used to just play in school and play for fun, but
1: I have this thing where I have, I struggle to, like when I take up an interest in something, I struggle to do it casually and it's driving my wife insane a lot of the time these days. And, uh, it's, it's basically, I, I had it with Magic, where, like, of course, after a while of, like, playing with friends and seeing then the tournament scene, and I, I wasn't going just yet, but I, I knew there were tournaments, but I, I just never, you know, it was also, it, I want to set the stage. It was, uh, Magic was extremely expensive at the time for us, like, our our average, like, income at the time was really poor. It was a couple hundred dollars a month, maybe, you know, it was, like, the average uh, income that someone would like with a regular job would make, and the cards were imported from the U.S. and like the customs and everything. It was it was really expensive. Like just just to get an idea, like our local tournaments uh, where we used to go, it was one tournament a week, and we sometimes had up to seventy players. And the price was one booster pack, and I'm not, and it's not. Of course, the, the store owner was ripping us off sometimes, but basically he was just hedging his bets because he was trying to accommodate for the fact that we as sometimes we only had 15 to 20 people at a tournament, and that wouldn't pay for the for the rent for where, where we were. So
0: yeah it's a tough business for him too I would imagine
1: exactly especially at the time right so uh, like the the entrance fee was like the, entr- the entry fee was quite low so he he just kept it consistent it was one pack uh, for, for these regular tournaments and uh, and people would still fight over it like you know we had still so many people and the, the tournaments were pretty cutthroat so uh, back to what I was saying uh, that about how I was like getting into it so I, I, I struggled to do things uh, like casually and it was when I started playing magic like the internet started to be a thing I started to like you i could i could go to my mom's work and and go on the internet and so of course playing magic i started to look at like articles from like the dojo uh or some of the really old school websites and i used to actually print out the articles that i liked and i used to read them like several times it was like tournament reports someone like mike flores adrian sullivan so already then i couldn't acquire any of these cards but i loved studying like what was successful and like what was good at the time so uh i i tried to from what they were saying i tried to make one like passable deck that i could play at least some tournaments and my first like proper constructed deck was a just mono red aggro uh and trying to play you know one mana two ones like goblin patrol jackal pop i had mock fanatics and then some burn spells like lightning bolts uh, incinerates things like this and it was basically a very cheap way to build some sort of first constructed deck that was at least Competitive, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't competitive where where me and my friends played because of course we used to play, you know, with big, with lots of life gain, big beefy creatures. So my, you know, my tournament deck was very bad then. But it's still, I wanted to do some to have a deck that I can go to these tournaments in, even if I didn't did do poorly. But my like proper first tournament that I saved my money for and uh, and uh, tried my best to to make the most out of was the uh, the invasion pre-release. So it was like 2000 2001. So because. Uh, again, to talk about these tournaments, the regular tournament had one booster pack, as prizes, but the pre-releases were supported by the distributor and by Wizards, so suddenly there was a box of product for first place, and even, like, you get prizes down to 16th place, and it always, like, lots of people came out to play these pre-releases, right, so like I really wanted to play at this stage, and funnily enough, at the, at the time, the pre-releases were by far the most competitive tournaments in our country, outside of like nationals where nationals qualified you for worlds and you got like you got a lot of money for for getting for qualifying so these pre-releases were a cutthroat very competitive but also that's what was fun for me right because everyone got a sealed deck and it was like i i didn't get outclassed by really expensive cards that i couldn't that i couldn't get for my constructed deck so at least like this sort of first kind of big investment gave me a kind of like a sniff
0: at the at the competitive scene Two things are coming out at me from the way you described it. One is that you were through and through a hardcore spike even before there was uh, even before the term was created. Probably <laughs> you you were very competitive, and uh, it sounded like you wanted to do what it took to be as competitive as possible within whatever format you were playing.
1: Yep, that's that's accurate.
0: And the other thing is your preparation. It sounds like you were one of the first people to to really use the internet and to think about the metagame. Because I, I, I can tell you a lot of people, and you, you probably know this too, a lot of people go into their first Magic tournament and they probably have no idea what what's going on, but I can sense that you really wanted to know what was happening in Magic. You, you were prepared with your mono-red deck, even though it might not have been the most competitive deck, but you were thinking like, okay, this is going to give me the best chance to, to win. Wanting to be a spike and also preparing to be a spike... Uh, good preparation that really stood out to me in terms of what you what you described
1: yeah so yeah it's I, it's absolutely accurate. I at the time like very few people were actually using the internet, so uh, like it was also not very accessible, and people just weren't thinking about it this way. Like people looked up like tournament results, or they were waiting for the. There was a Czech magazine where which was distributed, and it had deck lists and everything. And of course, people did sometimes. Like uh, like there was someone who you know brought a deck, uh, a net deck, basically from the U. S. from from like a tournament, and and started succeeding in local tournament and then, of course, other people copied him and so on. So it was still going on but I felt like I was one of the first people in our community that was actually following it. It it just took a while for me to be able to act upon it because of my financial situation like it was still a very casual hobby for me and magic at the time was quite expensive so i had to you know keep saving money or trying to pick my spots where i where i wanted to where i wanted to make an investment into cards and it was actually i have two stories if if i may yeah please so one of them was uh i remember there was a pro tour i believe in chicago I think so. It was standard. And I know uh, some people from our shop actually went to play there. And I remember there was a deck that Bob Marr used to uh, play that he played at the Pro Tour. And he did reasonably well. He didn't top eight, but he did reasonably well. And I read uh, like people from all the tournament reports. I saw people playing him. And I think he wrote a tournament report him, himself. And he was playing Blue Skies, which was basically, uh, it was like a mono blue deck that was playing, uh, like small flyers and then it had like foils, uh, gush and thwart to, for like counter spells, uh, you know, to get through. And even, I think it might have played I, I don't remember the whole deck because I, I would have to look it up right now but basically it was quite cheap like there were a couple of expensive cards but it was they weren't as difficult to get i think the most expensive was richard at the time i i suspect so that that was still a problem there. but i found a way to build the deck in a relatively cheap manner and actually went to play after i finally got all the cards from you know trading everything i went to play a local tournament and actually played the person that was play, who played the per, Pro Tour from our local shop in, in, in my first tournament playing it, and I beat him. So I actually, I thought I, I beat the Pro Tour qualified player in our shop, <laughs> and one of the best, yeah. best players in our country. And he even said, like, yeah, that's a good deck. I saw Bob Marr play, and I'm like, good, fine. I'm like, yeah, thank you. And you played pretty well. And I was, like, over the moon, right? I was like, uh, someone who played on the Pro Tour just said, like, that's I made a the good the highest choice. compliment. Exactly, and I played it well as well, so I was like really over the moon. And it, the the deck was still okay even after a short while, but it was like a deck that was under the radar and like people didn't really pick it up. But I still, I wouldn't say I had some big success, but I still managed to top eight some of our some of these local standard tournaments that we had going on at the time. And the second story, which I, I'm sure you'll find a little bit amusing, so I had a, I had a friend. Uh, or a friend of a friend who, who was from a rich family and he, you know, bought a lot of cards. And so once I knew he wasn't going to a tournament, and I, uh, I asked him if he, like, if I could borrow a bunch of his cards. And that uh, I mentioned Richard and Port at the time was extremely expensive, at, at least for, you know, for, for my times. I imagine something like $20, $30, you know, and for a full playset, it's like a lot of money for a small kid. But I got all the cards. I had Mastercores. I had Richard and Ports. I was playing a, mo- uh, like a mono red Ponza deck. So like a land destruction aggro deck. And uh, I made the I made the top eight of of that tournament. I was like I was crushing. I was like feeling really well. And then I, I came to the state where I was playing against the best player in the country. It was Ian Tomcani at the time. He he already had a pro uh, pro tour top eight at Worlds, and also finished ninth at, at a pro tour like recently or around that time and we played and i was i was actually winning so i had a I, I remember it was a situation where i had a master core out with a bunch of lands, uh which means that he couldn't really play any any further creatures and he didn't really have any any good answers to the masticor once i landed it and i only had uh if you know with master core every upkeep you have to discard your cards to keep it alive and uh so i was uh i was on already in a spot where i was winning you know and uh quite a big crowd formed because this was the last kind of game going on in the top eight and like all the good players like were out there playing, you know, and I saw like Yano, who was already—he knew he was losing. Like he knew that if everything goes according to plan, like I'm going to lose. Uh, he's going to lose, and um, and then uh, he's already laughing with his friends, like oh, you know, and they are teasing him, like oh, you're gonna lose to this kid, you know. Who f- he he finally got all his cards, you know, and and uh, uh, like oh, and I you know, and I start chuckling away and start or start, start smiling with them, you know, and they they uh, distract me, and then I I draw my card for my turn. Without discarding to the masticore, yeah, no one noticed though. And but then I was like, yeah, but I forgot to discard. So I've been in. Every, Everyone's like, what's going on? <laughs> and, of course, and then he like kind of like played out all his creatures and crushed me in two or three turns, you know. And like everyone was laughing at me. Like everyone like this kid has no idea he wants to be a good magic player look he went through all this effort to to get all the cards and look he made such a big mistake to to like lose to like you know yeah jan is so lucky and everything and that moment was like so bad like i i felt so ashamed because of course it had all the all the players i admired from our shop and like they just ripped me to pieces i was just so deflated but i i would say it's one of the defining moments of my kind of like magic career where kind of like i wanted I wanted this not to happen again because it was just so embarrassing you know for me as a competitive player i i I don't want this to happen again
0: yeah i mean they say that you only learn from your mistakes as a player right so this must have really made you hungry for more yeah it it definitely did and especially it showed me that if
1: i had if i wasn't limited with my cards that i could I could like battle with the best of them, you know. I could get get to the point where I'm playing the good players and and uh, kind of trying my best at at winning these tournaments, of course. And
0: yeah, so at that point, I, I it really did feel like I could I, I could really get there. I think that's actually psychologically very powerful. Is when you are improving as a player. It actually doesn't matter whether it's magic or anything, but when you feel like you know what the gaps. Need to be filled are so. For example, you said, you know, maybe I need to. Maybe you 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 look back and you think you need to play tighter in this situation. Not to forget the master core thing. Maybe it was because of nervousness or other things you were letting affect you. But also like the having the collection. So it like it was a very clear path in front of you. It's like okay, if I had the right cards or I made the right connections or I could afford more Rashad and ports or something like that. Then okay, then. I can be more successful in this way. So I think that's actually a very strong and powerful motivator is when you you have something in your head that tells you, okay, here's path A, B, C I can now take.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and and one of the things that i noticed at the time as well was the 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 networking thing was really something that i had to use to my advantage because i couldn't get all the cards i I needed i didn't have you know disposable income to just buy any card i wanted so i i needed friends that could help me out you know with with the right cards at the right time or you know getting whole decks if possible and maybe uh, on the other hand being a able to provide them with some sort of service either helping them with their deck or, uh, like lending them cards myself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I now remember having talked to your friend, uh, Ivan Flock and Mm -hmm. he had mentioned that you were one of the first people to bring tech and international knowledge into the Slovak (laughs) magic community. So it's, it really lines up with what you said is, uh, uh, it sounds like you were able to help players and, you know, kind of uh, make the community stronger in, in a way, but also to, to, to help others so that maybe perhaps they could also help you, right? Yeah, definitely. It's one of the defining moments
1: for, for this sort of competitive aspect was Slovak Nationals, I think, 2002. Uh, and nationals the, the year afterwards. I'll explain why. So for 2002, I was uh, playtesting with my uh, classmate Tomasz, and he was uh, almost everyone else stopped playing in our class. Like they were already already like or like playing for like a year or two, but they kind of like eh, they were past it. You know, they didn't want they they didn't want to keep buying cards to you know to uh, develop the internal metagame. And me and him were already starting going to tournaments, so we started having access to more cards and. We're playing mostly between between ourselves, and for those nationals, like I really, uh, I really prepared a lot by like studying what everyone else was doing, and so I basically had two decks available that I thought would be good, and I gave I I told Thomas that he should play a deck called Frog in a Blender, uh, which is a really silly name, but it was it <laughs> was a great action. name, <laughs> yeah, it was a, a very aggressive red green deck, uh, ma- madness like a madness tempo deck that was popularized by by some writer I think on uh, brainburst.com i believe it was and um... Uh, he, uh, I suggested him play. It was it was quite high variance, but the deck had some really powerful openings. So so it felt like, and I got a little bit too smart, a bit too cocky. I f- had enough friends and knew ab- about what I wanted to play in advance uh, quite a bit. I tried to metagame too much, and since I knew that I could get almost any deck, I try. I didn't want to play the cheap red green deck. I wanted to play something sophisticated, right? So I found someone with like all the pain lands that I needed, and I was playing like a John deck or so. Black, red, green, with like Call of the Herd and like Terminates, like removal spells and everything. And while I thought my deck was pretty well positioned, like in general, I think I did a good job in like preparing uh, a deck for the tournament. My my friend actually won the tournament, won nationals with my red green deck, and uh, I uh, and then he that qualified him for Worlds, and that was in Sydney that year. And he actually went and he finished in the top thirty-two. So he went four two every day, and so he won like I don't know two thousand dollars or three thousand dollars.
0: That was a lot of money back then.
1: that was incredible it was in, it, it was insanely a lot of money and and then I thought, like he's not better than me. like if he can do this. Like I can definitely do this. Like what? What is going on? You know, I, and uh, like I in the end, like we didn't get along too well in the end. Uh, we, he was even more competitive than I was, and uh, I, I I took losses as learning experience. Whereas he was a little bit different, and uh, like we parted our ways uh, in the year after. But. The year after, I actually played metagame again, where everyone was, I, I kind of, uh, what we talked about that, like, money matters, especially, like, to kids and, like, our our community at the time, where everyone was playing the blue-green Madness deck the year after, because it was very cheap. Every, the deck was a bunch of commons with only a couple of rares, so it was fairly easy to, to put together. And it was also very good, right? Not just cheap. It was also very good, yeah. But it was a, it was a purely like, a, the metagame was a, a really like 30-40% were playing that deck. Uh, it's also because most people didn't play standard, so they were trying to find a way that, okay, I can play nationals because it's a prestigious tournament without investing too much. So just it was just a, a lot of people playing Blue Green Madness. And so I metagamed this absurd deck that, like, looking back at it, it was just so bad, but it was, I, I played like green-white life game deck with Like, I was playing Life Burst, which is for two mana, you gain four life, and then you gain four more for every life burst in your graveyard, and it was really bad. Uh, but but in the end the the, the deck had a plan. I, I I saw someone play something similar at a GP like uh, a few months prior to that, and I just kept refining the deck to beat blue green madness while still having a bit of a shot against other decks. And actually came in and I actually won nationals that year. I, I and I stomped like I I didn't lose a game uh, a match in the in the Swiss rounds in constructed because I just knew exactly what I was doing. I knew my plan, and while uh, the other players knew how to to beat me. They just never could execute it because I was always like a step ahead of them. They didn't know what to do. Uh, remember at this time, the internet was already a bit more widespread, more more popular, so more more people knew uh, about about the metagame decks. But I brought in a non metagame deck, and I and I beat everyone. And actually, I beat Iv- uh, Ivan you mentioned, and I beat him in a top eight. And it's actually one of our biggest running jokes uh, until now, where I got very lucky to win that match because it was a, quite a bad matchup for me. But he he'll tell you how unlucky he was and i just tell him that i beat him with pure skill you know uh, (laughs) and uh it's all about uh, perspective yeah yeah exactly if he hears this he'll he'll be furious because he he he, uh, there was a spot where he just needed to hit a couple of outs over a few turns and he didn't and it was just uh, a big struggle for him at that point but i did win that and and crushed two blue green madness decks and the rest of the top eight. and now it was now me playing nationals and playing uh, winning nationals and then getting to worlds
0: you were, in a way, vindicated because hearing the story about what happened the year before with your other friend, I would have thought that you would have just thought play the best deck instead of playing a a, a metagame deck. It, it, it's always tough, right? Because it, it's it's like, do you play Cobblade or do you play the deck that only beats Cobblade when Cobblade yeah. is the best deck in the format? This is maybe getting a little too insider, but I also wonder, like, what was your calculus or calculation for deciding not to run blue green madness. Like, were you so confident in the other deck? What was it about it? It's just that you felt gave yourself such a, a huge edge.
1: Yeah. But one of the things that, that played a part in both of these tournaments was that I knew almost exactly what everyone was playing. So, uh, I I could I didn't make the um, kind of like a meta game kind of analysis but I I just was sure that uh how many bad matchups are they're going to be in the room for me you know and I I tried to do the math of like you know who, who's bringing what and and I knew that like basically there should be like two two people maybe playing psych talk that's not a great matchup I can win but it's difficult maybe two people will will find that new Miraris wake deck uh, but I don't think anyone uh, will have played it enough so I, I I'm pretty good there and these couple of matches that are even I can play these sideboard cards to improve that matchup so uh, I kind of it was like a calculated guess or like a, an educated guess on on the meta game both years where I thought like I the matchups that I'm I'm going to have are pretty good and 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 I just have to try to to maximize
0: my chances. Absolutely. So it sounds like it was a very well thought out decision. It was a probability or statistical thing where you did feel like that was the best deck in the room.
1: Yeah, it, it was definitely uh, like no already being in a community for a few years and knowing how things are going to shape up that I I could Kind of like guess the meta game quite well and and adjust what I'm doing to 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 that and uh, it was actually I won't talk much about nationals anymore because it, uh, in general like I didn't enjoy that much success and and so on but like from that point on I never told anyone what I'm playing because I, I they everyone knew that I'm the meta gamer and so that. Uh, that like if they knew that uh, what deck I'm playing, they would certainly always add cards to the sideboards of their decks to beat me or to try to beat me if they knew what I was playing. So uh, it was it's it's again for as long as Nationalists, I I refuse to tell anyone what I'm playing because I was always trying to one up everyone.
0: I mean that happens everywhere even today. It's like if you know that there's a good player in the community and he's playing this deck, people always tend to overcompensate for that player. Which yeah. is unfortunate, but that's the reality, right? Yeah, absolutely. I'd like you to tell me a little bit about your relationship with Ivan uh, or Ivan. Mm-hmm. Because that was really around the time that you guys crossed paths, right? Was in 2002, 2003. Can you tell me a little bit about how you guys met and maybe how how the initial impressions were and how did the relationship develop over the years? Uh, yeah, it was... Like, I got to know him through
1: tournaments. He was, uh, he started playing through school as well, through a different uh, school than I was going to at the time. And they had their small mini group that came out of that school. And once he started going to tournaments, like, him and I got to know each other and and got to hang out. And him and a couple of his closer friends are, are now decent friends of mine as well over the years. And, uh, like, eventually I actually. I went away for for a while, um, like after after winning nationals. I went, I wasn't living in Slovakia for two years, but when I came back, there was suddenly a, a good shop with playing space, and I uh, I used to go there almost every day to play some sort of tournament. And he used to hang out there as well. And this is the the shop kind of created the backbone of our competitive Magic scene. And like basically anyone who who went to the pro tour was playing at that job and we used to like PTQ together, travel to GPS together. And yeah, we've uh, kind of gotten to know each other uh, through these means. And yeah, it's, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say we're best friends or anything, but it's just like, we've known each other for so
0: long that it's like, we're very comfortable uh, with with each other. So which one of you guys turned pro first?
1: Uh, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, Ivan was uh, Ivan was the person that was getting to um, like started playing on the tournaments uh, on the pro tour and, and started to get some results. But I was the one with the with, you know with the first big results uh, when I when I uh, managed to top thirty two uh, pro tour Kuala Lumpur and even like even a, a half a year before that top hitting a GP in Krakow, 2007 i think so that was uh, uh, you know qu- already quite a, quite a bit after the 2003 nationals when winning nationals gave, uh, sent me to world like and and back then we also had the european championships i i did i did decently well it wasn't nothing like nothing great or anything but it, i i felt like it was okay uh, i mentioned that i went away for 2 years uh, to to belgium and then luxembourg uh, i spent around the two years uh, living there it's where i f- Figured out that what uh, how bad of a player I am Uh, like I I was living in my bubble in my own country where I became one of the best players in in the country uh, or so I thought at the time and but it's it's it was mainly through being able to you know do metagame calls and uh, study uh, the internet a lot but when I moved to uh, when I moved to Belgium at first like we had so many of the of the great players playing at the at the Brussels store, where suddenly like I was I was not as significant. And when I was playing with them, I f- quickly figured out that I'm not as great of a player. And uh, so once I came back to Slovakia around 05 06. I still started. Uh, I started PTQing again, and while qualifying for for the pro tours, like uh, I I just wasn't doing as well as I uh, as I thought I should be, and it was kind of like a very humbling experience. And I tried to kind of go back to basics and just keep playing a lot, keep like doing what I do well by. Um, but just trying to play the best, like growing my collection so that I, that I do have the access to the cards. I started playing GPs to improve, but I could never hit, like I I couldn't day two a Grand Prix to save my life, you know, in, in the, uh, kind of that sort of era. And I couldn't, I, I had trouble qualifying for Pro Tours. I only did like two, qualified for two PTs in like a four year stretch. So it was, it was very demoralizing. And uh, so, and I mentioned the the GP that I top aided. I I top aided a GP in Krakow in 2007, and uh, that qualified me for for a pro tour. Uh, And there I top 32, uh, so I qualified for the next one. That, that one I couldn't attend because I was uh, I had my um, like I wouldn't say graduation but I had had my university exams so I couldn't go to that one and the following pro tour was basically the big moment of my magic career was when I top aided the pro tour in Berlin and you could say that was the moment where I kind of turned pro but in, in that area it only meant that i i I' have attained a level a pro magic level enough to qualify me for a pro tour for a year and i didn't have
0: to ptq you were on the you're on the pt train so to speak
1: yeah. Even though, like, saying turning pro, it really didn't mean anything because for me, of course, the financial injection was huge. Like, the second place at the Pro Tour was uh, $20,000, $20, which was, for me, an insane amount of money. But it was at the point where I was, you know, I uh, uh, I had my mom, uh, like, uh, cover some of my living expenses while I was studying. And I, I was pretty good and like, getting to trade cards enough to always have access to what I need and, and uh, you know and just things like this have really uh have really then kind of said that okay I'm a pro but I was still studying so it was more more that I was uh I was a pro while studying so to speak so I I I I still f- tried to focus on school as much as I could
0: that's really interesting because every magic player I've spoken to who's achieved some decent level of success always talks about that these moments where they reach sort of awareness that they're not as good as they can be they need to get better and maybe the fire is lit so Mm -hmm. for you it was it was when you were out of the country for two years but you also mentioned that you couldn't day two a gp to save your life for a while there so yeah what, what were some of the things that you worked on or did to improve as a player during that time
1: uh some of the things was that i noticed that uh something that served me well in my small community was metagaming you know where i tried to be really smart about my deck choices and i was playing trying to find you know a really unorthodox deck uh to try to attack the metagame and this really didn't work that well in like large ptqs or gps because like the metagame was already pretty like set and i uh Uh, like, there were way too many rounds, I didn't know what people were doing, and I kind of, you know, something that serves you well is like, oh, you know what your opponent is playing at a local tournament, right? So you know which hands to keep, Uh, (laughs) you know how to... Totally. You know how to play the matchup. You know how to sideboard, but suddenly when you're you're playing against other people who are also trying to outsmart the metagame, and you know trying to bring in some some unexpected things themselves, it just felt like I need to level up my game, and this was like a process of learning on, of like trying to play the best deck, like trying to learn the best deck. It was a a time in, in my local shop where I just. Try, I, I went on like an insane winning streak, culminating with a winning a PTQ where I just kept playing the same deck over and over again and tuning it, um, to perfection just to make sure that even if, if people from, uh, outside the country come for the PTQ that I can actually win it and, and do a good job and it, it served me well. And for, for, for the tournaments, I, uh, that I did well, the ones I described, it was just like hard preparation, trying to learn from people smarter than you, and like trying to connect myself with kind of like the best players in the area. Of course, it was Ivan and it was other people as well. Uh, but when I, on the PTQ grind, getting to know people... Uh, it was just like every tournament was sort of like a learning experience. And of course, I was playing Magic online. I was chatting with people, trying to still read all those articles that I, that I used to before, you know, from the big big, uh, big writers of the, of the era. And it was just like a slow, a
0: gradual trying to improve myself, basically. So it sounds like your commitment with Magic or commitment into Magic was as high as ever during that time.
1: I mean, it was as I as I said at the start. Like once I get into something, I really invest very very deeply. Just as a as a small side note, for example, when I started playing League of Legends for like uh, maybe six years ago, just as a casual thing while I play Magic, it's I just could. It, of course, I played casually, but I still, you know, had to f- like make the right
0: build. How do I get better at this? Right? How do I improve?
1: Exactly. Yeah, because I'm so competitive, and I, and I want to get better at things that I just couldn't just like start up and do whatever. I needed to. I needed to know like what the best path to victory is. Right. So this is very much the same in Magic. It just uh, if I want to take things seriously, I just have to. I know I have to invest the time into it, and it, that's that's basically my my Magic path at that point.
0: Yeah. So walk me through that. I mean, now that you've basically an ongoing thing at the Pro Tour, what happens after that?
1: Yeah, so that was 2008 So it was the big breakthrough where I lost to LSV in the finals of the PT with the Elf deck, which was like the worst kept secret uh, at, a, at a pro tour in, in a while and it was just I was playing a broken deck at a tournament where I could play it and, and the metagame was not that well prepared for it and then I started to be on the train I had to start trying to connect with a bunch of the other, uh, other players who were qualified in my region so it's at the time where uh, I really started to talk to a lot of the Czech players. Because our com- communities were very intertwined, I made some friends in Austria and in in uh, Hungary. But it was usually a big group of Czechs and Slovaks who used to come out to play. And uh, it was at the, at the time where I noticed players like Martin Yuza, who's of course now in the MPL and a uh, historic Hall of Famer. And he he was one of the up and coming players, a bit younger than me. And I I used to hang out quite a bit with him. And there were a couple of players who some people rec- recognized, like Pro champion Lucas Blohan, And uh, uh, other players of that era uh, who were starting to do what I did, but they were, I've always felt a bit more talented than I was. But learning from them and playing with them at uh, at these tournaments, I started just grinding, you know, playing the PTs, uh, going to GPs, trying to, you know, get the points wherever I could to keep to keep qualified uh, to keep being qualified and it uh, it has served me well for for a while I I made a top sixteen at uh, a pro tour in Austin uh, a year after Berlin and then I had uh, some some small success here and there uh, with some with some. All right, uh, PT finishes and and decent finisher GPS without actually having a having a top eight, and uh, so. But the thing the thing that uh, like I always felt I was okay, I, but I I never could replicate you know my results right away. It was of of course it was deflating, but it was what you mentioned. It's like uh, knowing that. You have to keep improving, and there were some results that that were good, some less so, and it was just a humbling experience. Especially as uh, I think the more more important thing was that my studies were winding down, and I I, I knew that I would have to look for a job, and this was actually uh, the kind of like the worst worst year of my magic life, so to speak, was when I had to finish university and find a job, and suddenly I had very little time i was qualified for all the pro tours in a year but i had to i had to go to you know to my job 95 and at that point, I re- that was like a big moment for me where I realized like I can't keep doing this if I am not able to invest time in- into like playtesting properly. I had very few vacation days, so I was traveling to Pro Tours, you know, the day before, and uh, you know I wouldn't say I wouldn't say I'm un- underprepared, but I I certainly was less prepared than I that would li- I would like I would like have to been. I uh, my deck choices were not great. You mentioned Carblade, like there was one of the Pro Tours in Paris where I did really poorly and just because I, I, I knew I was prepared very badly. I only tested with some local players and I didn't study everything because I was just so busy with work. And it's kind of at that point where my magic career started falling apart.
0: Mm. And it, it, it's, it's tough because based on what you've told me, you want to be the best you can in what you do. And so when you know that you could put in more more work or more time to it and you're not, that that must be just very frustrating to yourself right
1: Mm -hmm. yeah it was definitely very bad especially because the first job out of school i had well the job itself was fun but it was also very mentally taxing and the pay was very poor uh i i really got not a lot of money for the work i was doing and combined that with not being able to have the time necessary to travel to these tournaments it was just a, a a bad combination where i ultimately felt quite unhappy it was also at the time where i've been uh, where i already had a girlfriend for a while and you know she was starting to go to work and it was like these real life real life things that were starting to get in the way of my kind of like magic career and i had to kind of i just didn't have the results anymore and i i tried to keep it going as long as i could but then basically that was it. Like I I had to I wasn't qualified for any more tournaments, and if I wanted to do it, I had to start PTQing again.
0: Did the thought ever cross your mind as to doing magic full-time and not having a nine to five? Or would that had just have been too extreme? I don't think it ever crossed my mind, just because it felt like I
1: kind of had to get a job i had to live a proper life as in like i wasn't a writer i wasn't i i wasn't good enough to you know to get the the big results i i mean i at the at the time i tried testing with like lots of different uh, lots of different players um to try to um, you know, keep up my levels. I playtested with a bunch of the Channel Fireball guys. Listen, I remember playing uh, a Pro Tour in San Juan in Puerto Rico, it was 2010, where I, you know that was like kind of like my thing. Where okay, now I'm going to play uh, playtest with the with the best team. and We're gonna have a great deck, and you know I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna invest uh, you know a week before the PT to come test and everything. And I ended up playing this horrible deck. Which uh, which me and Ben Stark played uh, for the PT, and the rest of the team had a different deck that I f- for some reason I didn't want to play, and three of them finished in the top eight, and I was like, I, I of course I, I I blamed myself, but I I blamed the team as well. Why like, oh they, when they tell me how good the deck was and so on, but ultimately it was my fault for not trying to commit, not trying to learn from them on like, how it was performing, what it was trying to do, and everything, and it was just so deflating, and uh, so I figured that like. Be doing this professionally was not on the cards that I'm just not not good enough and I I have to I have to do something else and basically uh I think Philadelphia in 2011 yeah was my was my last pro tour for a while where I where I, it was the last one I was qualified for, I couldn't play world afterwards. And it was at the time where actually Ivan started being like more and more successful. And I saw him like they were, they, they did really well at like team worlds with some other, some of my other friends and he was getting some, some decent results uh, under the hood. And I was like, man, like I wish I could do that, but I just, I just didn't, I, I didn't have uh, things at my disposal to make, uh, to make it happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Having said that, though, I, you've always been a big fan of Yvonne. I mean, when I spoke to him about your time together, he he didn't exactly say it, but I, I kind of felt like you guys had a very good competitive rivalry where it's like, I want to get better because uh, I want to be better than the other guy. <laughs> is that is that fair? You know, it's it
1: is a, kind of like the thing that we we didn't really talk about. You know, it's not a thing like you you mentioned, but of course there was some rivalry from the local tournaments back in days past, of course. But when things moved to the biggest stage, I think we each of us wanted the other one to do well enough, and. uh yeah, it was just like we. Uh, he he kind of jokes about it that I'm I'm a big fan of his and so on. It's it's uh, like one of the things that I noticed that he that does that I just can't can't do anything. Like sometimes we used to play board games after like the regular tournaments at our shop ended. We used to play like other board games, and he could like after the one game he could start winning.
0: Oh, he figures out the strategy of the game very quickly.
1: So fast, and I like. I, I I knew that I, I just like don't have the skill that for me it I really need to gr- the graft and the hard work to kind of learn the strategies. I need to read the articles, read what the other people kind of have been saying and it's i just can't can't come up with these things myself so it's kind of like where i i in a way i felt like i don't have this natural talent you know like that your kai's your finkels your Nassifs, your pvs the players had that i maybe i don't have the it factor that i have to work for it so hard that to make it happen and i have to take enough chances that i i'm just not that good of a player uh, one of the things that, that that kind of helped me was at one of these one of these pro tours uh, when when I f- realized that I wasn't as good as I thought was playing against uh, David, Br- not David Brooker I I forgot his name but it was a German player that the top eight at a pro tour uh, in limited and we we are already out of contention we're playing and I, I kind of like complained to him like you know like I I really feel like I had this one big success and since then like I really have trouble like putting any good finishes together and it's like it's a big struggle and he's like you know he says like oh you might not be as as good as you want to be but you're still better than 99 percent of magic players in the world like you're playing on the pro tour and everything and that kind of put things into perspective for me that kind of helped me realize okay i i i know when when i can be good and how i can achieve this and i just need the right conditions for it
0: basically totally not everyone can be John Finko. Only John Finko could be John Finko. Everyone has different <laughs> different skills and and different talents, yeah, exactly.
1: And this is something that Ivan is probably uh, like has understood from me when uh, through our interaction because he's a very good. Player with strategy and very very good player. Uh, like after a while, after working out some of the kings in his game, he's uh, he's very good. Like he's one of the best players I know, and he has improved leaps and bounds since I got to know him. But he also like understood that to be successful at the pro tour, it's not just about how well you can play, and this is where something that he keeps telling me that he admires about me, the fact that I can network, that I can connect the right people and, you know, plan, uh, testing, for example, in a way that he cannot, that these kind of are things that also contribute to success, uh, of, of a pro player. And, I think it's a good lesson for, for both of us that where I know I have to do better at trying to uh, trying to learn and, and be a good player per se and like knowing the ins and outs of my decks and of the meta game. But also he he recognized that he needs a good team or good friends around him to uh, to leverage on the fact that he's such a good player.
0: That's the end of part one of my conversation with Mate Zatokai. Stay tuned for part two, and as always, thanks for listening.